This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Well, yet another warning about the crisis in our healthcare system. And once again, it is about staffing. The Canadian Union of Public Employees, QP, is calling for 15,000 new hires this year alone just to keep emergency rooms and other units from closing. And in total, QP said 46,000. Thousand more hospital staff must be hired to deal with the turnover rate, which is apparently double what it was before the pandemic. Toronto Paramedic Services uh, say they need 500 new hires yesterday. And when it comes to ambulance services on top of staffing and offloading issues, some of the ubiquitous construction is yet another obstacle. So, of course, as always, we would like to hear from you. What are your experiences? What do you think of this situation? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now I'm joined by Mike Merriman, the paramedic and EMS chair of CUPE Local 416, and Dr. Jamie Spiegelman, internal medicine and critical care physician at Humber River Hospital. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Hello. Hi, thanks for having us. Good afternoon, Libby. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Okay, let us begin with Mike. Uh, we talk to you periodically, and it seems that it's always the same story. There aren't enough people. Yeah, that. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah, that's uh, that's the bottom line. That's a concern, you know, chronic understaffing and mismanagement and underfunding for decades have unfortunately led us to where we are today. There's no end in sight. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dr. Spiegelman, uh, I'm curious about the turnover rate. Uh, Humber River, of course, is, uh, you know, the digital hospital, the most technologically advanced. Are you finding that your turnover is is that much higher than it was before the pandemic? Well, the problem is uh, there's a domino effect, right, that, we, that we're seeing. We're seeing the paramedics bring a patient into the emergency room and that patient stays in the emergency room because there's not enough nurses in the emergency room taking care of the patients in the emergency room. But once those patients are seen and by specialists and are admitted to the hospital, there's a domino effect in our hospital where the floors don't have enough nurses. So the patients stay in emergency room longer than they should because there's not enough nurses on the floors taking care of patients on the floors. Even though there's beds there, there's no manpower to take care of those patients on the floor. So what we're seeing right now in our, our hospital, and I think all hospitals that I'm aware of, is this domino effect where there's not enough staff, nursing staff, health, uh, cleaning staff, like it's everything in the hospital. So it's a domino effect where it's being backed up all the way to the paramedics. Mm-hmm. Uh, and okay, so uh, the paramedics, uh, what about your attrition rate? Uh, what's that been like, Mike? Uh, we're averaging a resignation about uh, roughly one a week, which is alarming. Uh, pre-pandemic, um, I can't say what the numbers were, but I mean, it, it, they weren't even enough to cause concern before the pandemic as to the amount of, uh, you know, the, the number of paramedics who are actually leaving. But now, uh, you know, during the pandemic or the height of the pandemic and post-pandemic, it's it's about one a week that are resigning to move on to either fire services or other other uh, paramedic services uh, within the GTA. And uh, a lot of that's cost of living in Toronto too. That's you know forcing them out to work for other services. So it's cost of living. Um, what about the job has become? more difficult over this period, Mike? 
Well, it's yeah, that's obviously part of it too, Libby. It's the pace. It's the uh, you know even the nature of the calls to some degree. With Toronto obviously having a lot more uh, you know gunshot wounds and, and deaths as a result, the opioid crisis it, crisis it all takes its toll on on uh, paramedics and uh, you know they move on to greener pastures out to the GTA, other services where the call volume may not be quite as high. And uh, again, cost of living is cheaper for them. They don't have a you know. Lot can't afford to live in the city, so it's 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 they have you know their long shifts. They may have an hour, an hour and a half commute into the city. Can't afford to rent or buy in the city, so um, there's a lot of lot of factors that are driving them uh, out of Toronto. And 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 obviously one big issue is the you know the the the, the pay rate. The pay rate is not really any higher than it is in the rest of the province. In fact, uh, Durham Region actually pays its paramedics more. So there's not a whole lot of incentive for, you know, to keep paramedics in Toronto right now. Dr. Spiegelman, would you say that pay is a reason for burnout among nurses or is it a whole bunch of other things, including the incredible strain of having worked through the pandemic? Uh, I think it's multifaceted, but I, I totally agree with Mike in terms of what he said for paramedics, but the same can be said for, for nurses. I think doctors are in a little bit of a different situation from what I'm seeing. Uh, there are not enough eMERGE docs, but every other specialty in the hospital is well manned. But definitely the nurses in our hospital, from what I'm interacting with them, the, the same that Mike just mentioned uh, is happening with nurses. The, the pay is a big issue. Uh, what is happening is um, a lot of the nurses who can't retire are retiring or a lot of the younger nurses who were trained here find that they could be paid more doing either agency nursing or go to the U.S. or go to northern Ontario or go outside of the city where they don't have their cost of living isn't so high, as high as living in the GTA. So we're seeing exactly almost the same thing that, that the paramedics are seeing in terms of the nurses. You know, it was interesting. Uh, we uh, saw a news conference yesterday, and the union is calling for thousands of new hires. I gave the numbers out, 15,000 this year alone. But on the other hand, uh, the union acknowledges it's not like you can uh, snap your fingers and hire these people because they're very highly trained. So where does that leave us, Dr. Spiegelman? I think I think we've actually talked about this at our leadership in a hospital, and and what we've come down, what we've concluded from this, from what we've talked about, is that it does come down to money. Um, if you pay nurses enough, they'll stay here, as opposed to going to an agency nurse or as opposed to moving to the U.S. So I think if you pay nurses enough, they'll stay here, and I think. In terms of a short-term solution, I think that's the only solution at this point. Uh, and obviously, in the medium to long term, in the next five, ten years, obviously, you you train more of these nurses through our, through our nursing schools. Well, it, it's interesting. I know there's a lot of uh, talk about money, but one of the things that strikes me is that, you know, we've known for years that a lot of nurses and other professionals are reaching retirement age, yet we don't seem to have prepared for that. That's probably true. Uh, there are a lot of nursing students that, you know, are graduating every year and they're increasing the number of spots, but obviously it wasn't enough for our aging population in Ontario and especially in Toronto that we've seen. So obviously planning, the planning has not been great in terms of staffing nurse, nurses. I think from a physician standpoint, I think we've done a better job, uh, but nurses are really the frontline soldiers that we need. You know, there's way more nurses than doctors at, at the front line. So I think collaborating with the government as well as nursing schools will be important. I, I think we have to take a collaborative approach rather than a conflicting approach with the government to, to solve this, this problem that we're going to have and we have to deal with it. Well, and, and is, is there an issue that uh, experienced nurses are leaving the profession and you have, you know, newbies coming on and, and it's great that they're graduated with nursing degrees, but there's a big difference. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, we notice that as doctors when we give orders or when we're taking care of a patient and sometimes we're scratching our heads on why some, something wasn't done or something wasn't done correctly. Um, but I completely agree. There's definitely a difference in experience. Nurse versus a 
a non-experienced nurse that just came out of nursing school. One, one solution that has been proposed is there's a lot of international uh, people, uh, graduates in, in Canada who are doing other jobs like PSW or working at the Tim Hortons. And I think there, there probably is a better way of graduating them into our system better. Uh, I'm not sure how, but uh, I think that will have to come from government and the nursing schools. But there are so many nurses that I know of uh, that um, that are here but are not licensed to work here. For example, my nanny is a nurse and in the, from the Philippines, but she can't get a job here, so she's our nanny, right? So the people like that, I think we have to think outside the box, and I think that's one solution for sure. I, I thought that uh, the, there was a big announcement a few weeks back. That, was, that yeah. the rules the the rules were changing. I mean, we also one of the things we see with this government is a big, and all all levels of government a big lag time from the uh, fancy announcement and from anything actually happening. I haven't I haven't seen anything happen, and I haven't heard from the people that I know who are interested in the, these type of programs. And I've known I know a couple a uh, handful of physicians are, are in this position as well that. None, no one's really heard of any action plan yet. That's interesting. Um, Mike Merriman, you, you mentioned offloading. I, uh, mm-hmm. That is that, that paramedics often have to stay with the patient in eMERGE until they're checked in. I thought that issue was somewhat solved. Uh, no, the, the, the offload delay situation, Libby, it's been around for I've been a medic for 32 years, and it's been around for at least 20 years. And where the offload delay, it, it's, you know, what the public should know, the conservative government actually, in a roundabout way, they, they more or less created the offload delay situation, because at least within Toronto, because back in 95 under Premier Harris, they actually closed seven ERs in Toronto. Seven, when shut down, actually shut down a, a Two hospitals, too, the Wellesley and the Northwestern are gone. But they closed down seven emergency rooms with a growing and aging population. So that's less emergency rooms that medics had to take uh, patients to. So obviously things are going to back up. So that's when things started to back up with the offload delay. But we also, for close to the past 20 years, have managed with offload delay. It was a cost of doing business or a part of doing business, and, and the paramedics we managed, and we were able to still get the calls in a timely manner. There were provincial mandate timelines of when we had to get the calls, and we were meeting them um, because we had they were staffed appropriately. We had the surge capacity within the system to compensate for offload delay, but now with uh, you know decades of uh, underfunding and understaffing, and it was inevitable that we're, it's going to end up where we are. It was avoidable, but you know they had to put they had to put some investment into the system over those years. I mean, you know, Dr. Spiegelman's you know working at Humber River Hospital now, and that sort of replaced the two the two former hospitals, Humber Finch and Humber Church. So. You know, I was thinking, wow, we're going to get this great big emergency room in the new Humber Finch that was being built, or sorry, the Humber River. But it's really no larger than the old uh, emerge rooms from Humber Church and Humber Finch that got shut down. So we actually gained nothing as far as emergency room space goes to, you know, to, to take uh, to, to take patients too. So it's and the offload Libby is actually better now um, than it was several years ago. Medics used to wait an entire could could go in there in the morning with a patient, and they'd be there for twelve hours till their end of their shift, and still hadn't gotten a hospital bed to uh, transfer the patient to. That's not happening now. The most I'm hearing about is maybe, and that's a bad day is four hours that they're waiting. So. They've actually improved as far as that goes. So, but you know, the politicians and some of the managers of the you know chiefs of EMS services want to keep blaming it on the offload delay and and I and, and blaming the hospitals basically, which is un, to me is unfair to the hospitals. I think that's some scapegoating going on there because you know they they haven't invested in the uh, you know in in the numbers to 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 for paramedics to keep up with the growth that's been going on for for decades. 
And that's why we're in the situation we're in today. Uh, I, I want to talk about something else. Uh, yesterday I was off and uh, after cursing myself for taking University Avenue, I noticed because there was all kinds of construction and I was going northbound that I had not seen there before. Uh, on In the southbound lane, there was le- this incredibly ginormous flatbed truck that uh, went for blocks and took up most of the blocks. And there was an ambulance that was having a lot of trouble getting through. So, uh, Mike, how much trouble is this seemingly, you know, unbridled construction adding to the issues? Oh, that's, that's obviously playing a, you know, that's obviously playing a role and that's a factor. Anything that impedes our, our paramedics getting to a call is, uh, certainly not helpful because the response times are in the toilet now as it is. And, uh, I don't know if it's poor planning by the city. I mean, I, I don't know. Or I know no planning. Uh, yeah. I know there's a stretch out there in St. Clair West. I believe, uh, I was more of an East End medic, but uh, where they had the they where they had raised the streetcar tracks, sort of a you know they had to put put a median in the middle where the streetcar ran along, and um, the problem is that impedes us whether it be uh, westbound or eastbound. We we now can't go into oncoming the oncoming lanes to try to service a call, which you know before we could do that, and you know westbound. They were heading westbound for a call, and it's totally backed up. But Which it often is. I totally live there. Clear. Yeah, but eastbound lanes could be totally clear, but we can't get over them to uh, you know run the call through you know, the, uh, the uh, opposing lanes. Which you can make legally, a U-turn. Legally we're, legally, we're allowed to do with lights and sirens, and it obviously can save a lot of time getting around traffic. But with that type of planning and that type of construction, you know, a lot of, some of that's going on in Eglinton now because of the, you know, the, the like rail transit or whatever they're calling it. And it's, uh, yeah, it doesn't help. It, it certainly doesn't help. Uh, I know the Danforth's been bad and uh, just whatever way they're designing things that even cars can't, they have nowhere to pull to the right now to even get out of our way. So it's, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not good. It's certainly not helpful. Mm-hmm, yeah. Um, I'm looking at the clock and we're almost out of time. Dr. Spiegelman, what, what realistically would you like to see happen to, you know, alleviate this situation? Like we mentioned multiple times here, I think it comes down to having enough staff in the hospital uh, to mm-hmm. stop that domino effect of backing up all the way to EMS. So it comes down to, from my perspective, in the hospital, uh, enough nurses, enough nurses working in every department and the merge on the medical floors, in the ORs. So I think we need a solution to retain and increase our number of nurses. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, We're going to wrap things up. Uh, I'm sure, unfortunately, we're going to have to be talking about this again soon. Thank you so much, Mike Merriman and Dr. Jamie Spiegelman. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank Thank you, Doctor. We are going to take a quick break, and, uh, well, some people are doing really well. I'm talking about all the civil service executives who collected collectively millions of dollars in bonuses, even though their performance targets were not met. We will talk about that on the other side of the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Have you tried to get a passport lately? What's your experience at the airport? What about a court date if you need one? Okay, those are rhetorical questions. We know that these are just a few of the areas where government services are not working. But the people running those departments... And some of those working under them have collected a total of $191 million in bonuses, performance bonuses, performance targets. Well, they're not necessarily being met. Apparently, half the time, 50% of the time, those performance targets are not being met. Well, what do you think of that? What do you think of that? 
The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Chris Sims, who is the Alberta Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation and Conservative MP Kelly McCauley, who is a Member of Parliament for Edmonton West. Thank you so much for being with us, both of you. Thank you. That's my pleasure. Okay, well, let us begin with MP McCauley. Uh, were you at all surprised by this? Unfortunately, not surprised, disappointed. Uh, we had the exact same issue last year, right in the middle of the worst of COVID. The Liberals had paid out $171 million in bonuses for similar poor results. Um, which at the time was by far the highest amount ever paid out. And here we have a year later, and government has not learned its lesson, it seems. So what's the rationale? What do they say to you? Because presumably a performance bonus, I mean, I know there are a lot of people in various sectors who consider it their right to it, but theoretically you have to weigh it against performance targets. If they said uh, that, say, uh, the wait time outside a passport office would only be four hours, you know, presumably they have to check that before handing over a check. Yeah, well, in the real world, uh, you would assume that. But in the, uh, the liberal, liberal government world, it's, it seems almost an automatic uh, bonus for everyone. I think it was 89% of uh, executive-level uh, bureaucrats received quite hefty bonuses for certainly not achieving their published uh, metrics, their published targets. Uh, liberals have used an excuse of there's soft targets such as uh, ensuring access to mental health as a reason to give a bonus. And, yeah, if we make someone wait outside 12 hours uh, for a passport or make a family wait two years to bring a loved one over for immigration, that's that's okay, it appears. Chris Sims, uh, what's your take on this? Well, I'm with the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. who have been around for more than 30 years. Um, this is gross. It's a huge waste of taxpayers' money, and it really highlights uh, the tale of two pandemics. Uh, it's really been us and them. Uh, we take issue whenever we hear the government and bureaucrats say we're all in this together. No, we're not. We're all in the same storm together. Some of us happen to be on big government yachts, and the rest of us are out here in dinghies. Um, we've, you know, we've seen people take massive pay cuts. We've seen people locked out of their jobs. We've seen people lose their businesses. These are all working, tax-paying people. And yet, we're seeing on the government side of the rope, about 90% of people getting bonus pay. Okay, number one, they shouldn't be getting a pay raise, period, while we're in this gigantic mess. And the idea that they're ladling a bonus on top of that is offensive to most taxpayers. And we need to keep in mind, too, uh, this isn't just places like the passport office, which apparently don't seem to be doing a very good job. <laughs> We're also seeing places like CMHC, whose entire mission statement is to keep housing affordable, handing out bonuses to them, too. So this it's way past time for this nonsense to stop. Uh, let's take a uh, call. It, it's truly indefensible. It is. Let, let's take a call from Mary and Caledon. Hello, Mary. Hi, Libby, thank you. Um, the, lady, the lady who just spoke, um, she, she's um, reflecting my sentiments 110%. I, I'm um, very disturbed by this offensive um, nonsense, as she said, that's going on. And um, I think that a lot of people are catching on to the games that those in government are playing and they're getting fed up and it's nothing, there is nothing that, or it feels like there is nothing that anyone can do about it uh, unless you want to go and stand on the corner and start screaming. But um, um, it's just, I can't believe actually that this is happening in our democratic society and I can't believe that they are allowed to get away with this $191 million in bonuses. Now, 
Libby, I don't understand. It, did they vote themselves the bonus? Like, who decided no, that they get the bonus? It's performance pay. It means it's up to your uh, manager, your superior, whether you get it or not. Um, Mary, thanks for your call. It's like there are there are pro, there are bonuses uh, in all kinds of uh, private sector jobs, and your boss decides if you get it. Uh, so. Chris, I mean, um, some people are saying there should be yet another body overseeing this. Does that make any sense? <laughs> no, no, don't do that. We'll wind up paying them bonuses, too. So <laughs> You're right. Too. That's what I think. Yeah, you know? If I can chime in on that, there is yeah, a body overseeing this. It's the president of the Treasury Board, the liberal yes, exactly. minister who is, <laughs> you know, nominally the employer. We yeah. brought this up last year and asked them to change it. It's it's indefensible, it's incomprehensible that this has happened again and again for 53% of their targets, they failed. Uh, I, department I, by department, all these major government services, scandals, harassment mm-hmm. issues, and it's been failure. But it's been paid, very healthy pay for failure. Well, a, a couple of questions here. So CRA uh, handed out a lot of bonuses. Now, I think they actually are doing a pretty good job. Uh, am I right or wrong on that? I would say I'm wrong. I'm no. praise the CRA. <laughs> but I'm attacked. But, really but let, let, uh, uh, let MP McCauley go on. Yes? No? Yeah. No, of course, we have to, you know, we do have to acknowledge that there are some very hardworking and some very good executives throughout the department, throughout all the departments. But when the reality is, if you miss the targets, we should not be paying for the failure. The CRA, it's still, you know, you're lucky if you spend four hours on hold before they uh, cut off your line and hang <laughs> up on you. You're lucky to get the right advice when you talk to them. It's plagued with scandals with, you know, the minister being apparently aware or claiming to be not aware of special tax deals being made for insiders. It's, it's not a well-run department and needs reform to well, serve Canadians, they- but we're paying out better. Bonuses. Well, they did. They did get that serve out the door in a timely way. Well, I, I think it was a very small amount. It's a lot of the CRA and bless the CRA. They kept very good records. A lot of them were at home, unable to work at the very, very beginning. So, yeah, a small group of them I managed to have it done, but to pay out uh, so many, I. Yep. Not, I'm having difficulty with that, is basically. Um, Chris, have you singled out? Is there any department that, in your opinion, was the worst offender? It's really hard to pick uh, because this is just such a huge waste of money, and it isn't just the bonus pay. This is a repeat offender issue. So, like for example, uh, the feds also spent about 1.6 billion with a B on overtime since 2019. And this is according to records that we obtained at the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Now, some people might be thinking, oh, well, because COVID, it would be Health Canada, right? No. Despite the pandemic, Health Canada and the Public Health Agency of Canada, they accounted for less than 7% of that overtime pay during COVID-19. It was actually Fisheries and Oceans Canada shelling out 98 million bucks in overtime. So there's like a lack of oversight here. Uh, there's a lack of accountability. And to your caller's point, I hear her frustration. And to give her some hope, the MP right now is doing his job. In opposition, he is saying, you know what? I ferreted out this information. I'm trying to hold the government to account. We need to do something about it. We agree. What can your listeners do? They can email and phone the minister responsible for this. Then what that minister does He or she walks over to the department, okay? The department is full of unelected bureaucrats who are handing out these bonuses and getting these bonuses. The minister's responsible for it, though. So that then puts pressure on that elected minister to get their acting gear and to say, you know what? No more. I want a full audit, a full review, no more bonuses during this mess. Or at the very least, they have to be based on performance. This is unacceptable. So send that email, make that phone call, put the pressure on the right point. Uh, Kelly, do you think that'll do any good? Well, to 
to me, uh, I think the answer is to uh, not vote for liberals who keep doing that. <laughs> but uh, Chris has a good point. You know, we need to, you know, get the message across to, you know, the Treasury Board president, the local MPs, it's just as important to contact in Toronto and other places and say, this is unacceptable. This is money, resources that is better spent elsewhere. And I believe incentives are an important part of a pay package, but it should be based on achieving tangible results for Canadians, not for internal gain of tangible results for Canadians, whether that's timely passports, whether that's reuniting families in a timely fashion, whether it's CRA answering the phone within a couple rings and providing proper tax advice, um, serving our veterans. These need to be the services that we're paying for that should be rewarded for and not, as I say, 98% of CRA executives got bonuses. Hmm. Ask any of your listeners, when was the last time you were able to phone the CRA and get a prompt response? 1960, maybe? Like, <laughs> okay, maybe it no, was. No, I'm being facetious, but it has to be accountable and it has to be tangible goals and results that serve Canadians. Okay. Uh, we're going to wrap things up on that note. We'll uh, have to follow the money and see if there is any change in that. It's also interesting that after last year, the bonuses didn't go down. They went up more than 10%. More inflation, it appears. Well, yeah, exactly. You've got to cover these guys' costs of inflation while uh, nobody else gets much relief on that note. Uh, Thank you so much, Kelly McCauley and Chris Sims. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you. We're going to take another break, and uh, we're going to talk about another area that needs work, is having work, and that is Eglinton. Have you been there lately? Well, we just learned about another official delay of the LRT. It is ruining businesses in the area and making the whole area, well, it's been like that for a long time, uh, virtually impassable. We will be talking about that when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Have you been up around Eglinton lately or... Uh, say, any time in the last decade or 11 years. That's how long the LRT has been under construction, and to say that it's bad for business is an understatement. And we've just learned about another delay. It was supposed to be finished in 2020, but the dates are pushed back annually. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So the new date is in 2023, But there's no guarantee they won't just delay it yet again. Some are even calling for a public inquiry, though I'm not sure how that would help move things along. The numbers to call, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's bring in Councillor Mike Cole, Ward 8, Eglinton Lawrence, and Maureen Sirwa, Chair of the Eglinton Way BIA. Thank you both for joining us. Hi, Libby. Hi, Maureen. Uh, Mike, Hi, Mike. Nice to see you. <laughs> uh, Mike, uh, your reaction to the latest delay, was uh, was it at all a surprise? Uh, well, just uh, mad as hell as all the residents are. Thousands of residents are mad as hell. All the small shopkeepers in Eglinton are just uh, livid uh, that... Uh, of this latest delay, and they have given no future date. They say they don't know when now. They don't even have a date. Could be 25. Who knows? Oh, I thought it was 2023. No, I misspoke. No, that's nothing. No date. No date. Okay, people, sorry about that. I had some misinformation. Um, what is the rationale? Did Did they explain what the reason for the delay is? No, no explanation. Uh, they just said they're having some problems at the station. And that's why we need an inquiry here, because 
they won't tell us what the engineering problem is. They won't tell us what the blockage is and uh, how they're going to fix it. So if we don't know and they won't explain the uh, obstacle here and getting it done, uh, you know, we can't really find a solution here. So they haven't explained uh, why they can't get this done. And they're refusing to give any details. And, uh, you know, we want to know what the problem is, and then we can fix it. They're pushing the fix. It. But right now, they are not disclosing any of the uh, serious uh, uh, problems they found underground, and they're not, uh, you know, coming clean with the people uh, in the Eglinton community. Maureen Sirwa, give me a sense of the businesses affected. You have a number of businesses that are closing. I I drive by there occasionally, and uh, I see storefronts papered over. Hi there. Yeah, there's lots of businesses that are businesses closed for various reasons. Um, Sometimes the people retire. Sometimes it has to do with um, lack of business. The pandemic certainly didn't help uh, a lot of the businesses uh, along the Eglinton Corridor who were struggling at the beginning and then continued to suffer. So we don't have any hard numbers on on the why the business is closed, but you can certainly see that there's vacancies. And the other problem is that who's going to rent a store if the uh, LRT is continually delayed? No one would take that on. So it's very hard on the property owners and the landlords who want to rent those shops. And um, there's no certainty on an opening date. Mm-hmm. And you don't have a number on, on people that are uh, you know losing their business because of this. We don't have those exact stats because there's no there's no one businesses often don't close just for one reason. But so I do not have that statistic. Well, Libby, I counted. I went door to door because I represent four BIAs from Caledonia, already young, uh, and Dagenham uh, Way is one of the four. I counted 125 stores that were closed earlier this year. Uh, and sure, some of them, as Maureen said, could be the result of pandemic, etc. But there's no doubt about it that uh, when you can't even get into the front door of your store and there's been major uh, cranes and uh, construction equipment uh, which obstructs parking, uh, and not to mention uh, you can't drive on Eglinton in many cases, especially, as Maureen, you know, at uh, Bathurst at Chaplin Crescent, uh, um, and it, never mind the Allen, <laughs> which is uh, hell on earth uh, for anybody. So we've had 125 that I counted were closed uh, earlier this year, and obviously some of it has to be the result of the traffic uh, hell and the construction hell. And the other problem, uh, Mike, and you know this has been a huge problem in our BIA, is the, uh, the parking, because um, the workers all park where the customers should park. And there's a lot of workers here. So they are taking up a tremendous amount of parking spaces, which makes it very difficult for uh, the people who work in the community to park as well as visiting customers. So parking has been a massive issue in our uh, BIA as well. People are frustrated and uh, you put a little snow on the side of the road and it's going to get even worse. So it's, the delay it's, is huge. Uh, you're mentioning the parking. At least they're not closing an extra lane of traffic so they can park, which is Yeah, no, but something. they've closed uh, all kinds of lanes, never mind an extra lane. They've been closing lanes at Allen Road and Eglinton yeah. for the last five years. We've well, had I know, yeah. Two lanes, two lanes because of the construction. Yeah, and it can be very confusing about oh. where to go there. <laughs> Tell me about it. I drive through the area almost every day, and I'm confused because they keep changing where the uh, new construction lane is. Uh, it is very dangerous plus confusing. It, well, I so, would have to agree with that. Um, one of the things that has never existed is compensation for the businesses for the uh, that are impacted, and that's never been um, brought up. Uh, it's been brought up by the BIAs and by lots of people, and yet Metrolinks is, is not even interested in considering any kind of compensation for the businesses impacted. And we're talking 10 years now going on more. So that is a huge issue, and it's an issue even going forward on the Ontario line. Like, what's going to happen to those businesses? If Metrolinks is making a mess of this job, what's going to happen to the businesses in the next bit of transit infrastructure? 
that's where we really need to think. Mike, who would who would have the authority to make them give compensation? I don't see why they would do it voluntarily. Well, the, the provincial government that's spending $10 billion on this line certainly has uh, an open checkbook uh, on this uh, construction, and uh, they uh, have the authority to do that as part of the cost of uh, building this infrastructure, because normally speaking, infrastructure improvements take place over six months a year, but this is uh, 10 years plus. And so we've passed unanimous resolutions by the City of Toronto Council three times asking for compensation for businesses. But no, it's not only businesses. There are thousands of residents who cannot get out of their driveways because what people do is they have to go up residential streets to get up to the Allen or get up Bathurst Street. The residents have been choking in fumes people driving on sidewalks, uh, wrong way on one-way streets. This is, happens every day. And if you come to Bathurst and Eglinton today at 4 o'clock, Maureen knows, you're going to risk your life basically walking or trying to get out of your house, for God's sake. So the, the, the homeowners need to be compensated too. And they probably uh, aren't uh, going to do very well if they wanted to sell their house. Let's take a couple of calls. We've got Daryl in Toronto. Hi, Daryl. Hi, everybody. Um, I just wanted to call in with a little bit of humor. I've got a flyer that came out. Uh, I used to live in Bathurst and Finch area a long time ago. And uh, this was put out by the local MPP there, whose name happens to be Mike Cole. Hi, Mike. Yeah. So I just thought I'd read this out. It says, when will Eglinton line work begin? Construction is estimated to begin in 2010, with the line fully running by approximately 2016 with all new floor vehicles. So I just thought I would send that When out. was that from, by the way? It's interesting, a little bit of history there. What was the date on that? It's got to be before 2010. <laughs> uh, it's a little flyer you, you gave out, a glossy thing with you standing next to one of the Vehicles yeah, yeah. Thing. So th- that's how long we've been waiting and we've been promising uh, for, again, a decade plus, And we were told this is going to be done. And everybody loves the fact we're building this uh, subway cross town. And uh, yet people are now beginning, beginning to be soured on it because they're saying, when you promised this, it was supposed to be done then. And now we hear another open-ended delay that uh, could be who knows how long. And another quick comment I had is that um, I can remember it was like about ten years ago. I was living up around Shepherd and, and Finch, uh, young and young and Finch area, and they were constantly closing the the young line down early every night of the week, kind of thing to to do this uh, signal upgrades or whatever. And then they started using the excuse, what we're doing it while the crosstown is doing stuff like that. Why are they still doing this? How long does it take to do any of this stuff? Okay, I will let them answer that, Daryl. Thank you for your call. And people, we still have a bit of time left in this segment. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-744-740. We're talking about the latest delay on the LRT. Uh, there isn't even a date now. We have businesses suffering. We have homeowners suffering. Uh, we have a pretty chaotic situation on the road there with no end in sight. And what do you think? And especially if you have a business there, uh, we want to hear from you. Maureen Sirwa, um, Mike brought up a public inquiry. Uh, those usually happen after the fact, and uh, they aren't exactly speedy themselves. Do you think that would uh, solve anything? So I've reflected on, on Mike's suggestion of a public inquiry, and we certainly need to find out what's gone wrong with this project. But I, I do not see how this is going to help this particular, the businesses on Eglinton. Where I see the benefit of an inquiry is to understand the mistakes and the pitfalls and all the 
headaches that have happened on this line with regards to future infrastructure. And that could apply to um, any time that business is um, disrupted by long-term construction, because it's not just transit that could cause long-term construction. It could be road replacement and so on. There has to be something in place. And we've learned from the pandemic that there are methods and ways to compensate businesses who are um, impacted by catastrophe, either the pandemic or long-term construction. So these need to be embedded in the contracts with with the province. This needs to be part of the contract. If it's not in the contract, then it just becomes charity. And we as the BIAs have had to fight tooth and nail for every single thing that we've received, be it keeping our streets cleaner or working with Metrolinx to try to get any kind of um, support for our BIAs and the businesses that we support. So is there this, has to be something going forward. Is is uh, is it worse under the current management or is it kind of consistent going back to previous CEOs? Um, it's, it's, it might be getting a teensy bit better, but not much because it is a massive organization. It is a big lumbering, massive organization and trying to get in touch with the people who have the authority to make the decisions is very difficult. There's a lot of people that you have to um, encounter at, at, at the community level who do not have the authority to even move a pylon if it's in front of a business and disrupting the business. You could have pylons in front of your business with for future construction and no one can move them, but no construction is happening. So how are the, how are the businesses supposed to survive? So that's the problem. There's no direct, um, interaction with the people who have the authority to make the changes. Uh, you know, it's interesting. We were talking about that very problem on our municipal panel last week with Councillor Pasternak, and he was saying things, Mike, like, we're disappointed with our subcontractors who are doing this, who are closing lanes and leaving them closed while no work is going on, and on and on. And, and I am just, I mean, I know the situation with Metrolinks is a bit different, but I'm just mystified the city is paying money, and uh, uh, why can't they deal with this stuff by withholding money? Well, they do withhold money on, on uh, contracts. Uh, I mean, uh, it happens all the time. The problem is there is so much construction, so many contractors, so many subcontractors. Uh, I mean, Toronto is the construction center of uh, North America, so there's always going to be challenges and uh, we've got to be a lot tougher with our contractors because they leave um, incredible messes uh, that I'm dealing with on a regular basis. But the other thing about the inquiry, listen, we can't sit on our hands and just say, woe is me because of delay. And that's why I'm saying we need some kind of answers here and we don't have to have a full judicial long drawn out inquiry. We need to get some answers and the premier and Minister Mulroney could appoint two people and say, listen, give us an answer in two weeks, question Metrolinx, find out what's gone wrong, why can't you fix it, and thirdly, what's the cost of this delay? Because this delay means they're going to have to employ contractors for another year or two. This is going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars, so I'm not willing to wait after the fact. I want these answers right now because there's so much money at stake the uh, Again, my residents are just fed up with the choking on traffic, so we can't wait. We need some answers now, and that's why I'm calling for an inquiry, and we can do it in a week if Premier Ford wants to get to the bottom of it, which I think he would like to know why these taxpayer dollars are going to be wasted. Hundreds of millions of dollars will be spent next year again with this delay. It's the cost of the delay to the taxpayer, too. Well, has anyone asked him or Minister Mulrooney to do this? They've asked, but no response. Who's who's asked? Has it, is it the mayor or who? Well, we've asked. The reporters have been calling uh, Minister Mulrooney. They've been calling Ford's office and saying, what do you think of this inquiry? What do you think of the uh, delay? You got anything to say? They say, no. Leave it up to Metrolinx. The Metrolinx is answerable to no one. Queen's Park isn't even sitting. <laughs> There's no questions asked about uh, this, the cost of this overrun at Queen's Park. They're all silent. We need some answers, and we can't just sit there and say, this is awful. That's why I'm saying. Let's get some answers and fix the damn thing. 
Maureen, um, do you have any uh, theory why uh, no one at the province is being responsive? Well, um, it's in, in my experience, whenever there's bad news, Metrolinx is silent. Um, and there seems to be a trend of releasing this kind of bad news on a Friday afternoon at 4.30 when nobody's around, when uh, the offices are starting to close. So um, their answer is usually silence. Uh, and, and, and I'm sure you've had difficulty even trying to reach them. They are not um, transparent and they're not open. So uh, we, uh, the BIAs along Eglinton have uh, the BIA, the Eglinton Alliance. It's the it's a grouping of the BIAs that are impacted by long term construction. And uh, we had a meeting scheduled for tomorrow, and um, Metrolinks canceled it. So they don't even want to talk to us. And um, we're quite sure it's because uh, we want to hold them accountable for this delay. Hmm. So what's it going to take? Well, it's no, going to take for people to get mad as hell and sense. demand some answers here, rather than everybody, as I said, uh, complaining about the, the Metrolinks. We've got to basically force them to answer questions, and that's why we need an independent person. Give them a week to put Metrolinks on the stand in a public place and say, explain why the delay, explain the cost of this delay, how much longer, what is the engineering problem, that you can't fix. We have the right to know this is a taxpayer. This is $10 billion. And there's no, nobody's asking questions about this $10 billion project. It's just mind-boggling. Okay. Uh, we have time for one very quick call. Jim in Toronto, very quickly, please. You're on the air. Yeah, I'd just like to say, Lily, that, uh, you know, we got a politician who uh, runs this on Ontario who's a businessman, not a, not a politician. And that's why we got so much construction. So it's a guy, Doug Ford, who thinks he's king of Ontario, and his playground is a Tobago. And that's why all these, a lot of these things are going on. The money is going to contractors. When he said he was going to put Ontario back in business, it didn't mean you and I. It meant the construction and developers. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, so uh, our caller is blaming Doug Ford. But uh, let us give our panelists 30 seconds each to sum it up, uh, starting with Maureen. So um, I, in many ways, I agree with Mike that we need to hold Metrolinks accountable. They need to really um, get back to us. And, and I agree with his idea of having that um, inquiry, and we need to get to the bottom of it. And the other thing is we also need to look towards the future for the businesses who are going to be facing this similar problem going forward on the Ontario line. It's not going to go away, and it's going to impact more people. And business... Um, Transit cannot be built on the backs of small business. Okay, Michael, last 20 seconds to you. Well, you know, public transit is supposed to be a dream. In Eglinton, it's become a total nightmare. So let's get some answers and find out how many billions they're wasting here. Let's get some answers. That's what I'm saying. Okay, thank you so much, Mike Cole and Maureen Sirwa. We appreciate your time. Hang in there, Maureen. Okay, bye-bye. Thank you. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.